Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. With each episode, our diverse and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention, together, to breathe, to reflect, and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice that we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. This is Adam Outland, host of The Action Catalyst. I wanted to tell you a little bit about our exceptional guest today. Matt Higgins, who is a guest shark on ABC Shark Tank, is an executive fellow and teacher at Harvard Business School and through RSC Ventures, the private investment firm he co-founded, an investor in some of America's most beloved brands. His new book, Burn the Boats, provides an actionable playbook for fearless success and inspiring stories of great entrepreneurs. Go to burntheboatsbook.com to learn more about how to toss plan B overboard and unleash your full potential. Or go to Amazon.com and search Burn the Boats to buy now. It's time to break the patterns holding you back and reach new heights. Visit BurnTheBoatsBook.com. Welcome back to the Action Catalyst. This is Adam Outland, and we're continuing the discussion we began in episode 415 with Matt Higgins, co-founder and CEO of private investment firm RSE Ventures, executive fellow at Harvard Business School, guest shark on ABC Shark Tank, and author of Burn the Boats, a guide to casting away your safety nets and overcoming your hesitations. There's a paraphrasing of a of a quote that I'm going to butcher right now, but it says something to the fact of it's important for a man to be ready for when his time comes, right? Yeah. And I feel that it, even if you hadn't had that clear picture in your path, you were constantly preparing yourself for a bigger play. Yeah, I, real, I realized very early, like, okay, if I'm going to have what's, and again, another question I always ask myself, what's the highest and best use of my time, energy, and resources, right? What's the highest and best use of my skills? If I know how to communicate and I understand how press works, is the best use of that deploying it on behalf of somebody else or on behalf of myself? Mm-hmm. So let me put myself in a position to be somebody who needs those skills and not somebody who was rented for those skills. The kind of a key decision. And I want to tee off of something you said about, about timing in life too and opportunity. One of the hardest decisions I ever made was taking the job, the press secretary job. Because if you look at my life, uh, I'm going to law school at night. I'm trying to get through law school. Anybody who went through law school knows it's not like it's not a, like a walk in the park, right? And I'm going to law school at night, working during the day. Uh, and then I get a call in April of, um, you know, of, uh, March inviting me to come back at the last year of the mayor's office. Right. And, you know, the last year of any administration, you're like a lame duck. So it was like, and I was stressed like, oh God, I have law school. I'm taking care of my mom. Like, don't worry. It won't be like, it's the last year we'll coast. I'm like, I don't think you can coast like city of New York, but okay. And then my mom had been deteriorating increasingly, but at the same time, we the money was drained. We had a home health paid. I couldn't afford to pay her anymore. My mother couldn't even use the shower anymore. And my mother was at that point using oxygen. And I remember she was saying like, you know, don't go to work. Like, I don't feel good. And I, and I would say like, I, like, what do you mean? Like, we have no money. I have to, I'm press secretary of the mayor of New York. Like I have to go. And so think of the juxtaposition. You're walking out of this house, which is a source of shame for me that nobody ever comes over. But this is the day, you know what I mean? Like, this is the day I am going to achieve my destiny. I'm going to make, and I would say like, everything changes from here on. What I really meant is like, I can finally break free if I'm honest. And Uh she asked me not, she asked me not to go, you know, I go to work, you do what you got to do, you know, and I get a call that day at 10 o'clock, she had called an ambulance, but she had never done before. And I was actually relieved, you know, that she was going to go to the hospital. And I remember somebody else like, Hey, do you want us to send somebody with you? I mean, you know, we can, we can help you. 
I went to the hospital after stopping off and, and she had died, you know, half an hour earlier. For me, it has spent all this time in my life. And then she passes away that day, you know, like it just, I, yeah. And I don't know the moral of that story is like, what was the purpose of all of this? Like I was doing all this work to try to get there. And I guess the, the takeaway for me was that uh, there are no happy endings guaranteed in life, right? I, like as harsh as that is, the day before she had died, number one, she had committed that she would eat applesauce from now on because she was 400 pounds and she was like, I'm ready. You know, you, we all know when, when life is being squeezed out from us. And two, she said, I just want to take an airplane before I die because she had never taken an airplane. It's hard for me to, sometimes I have to like disassociate myself. I talk about it because we should be reminded that there are no guaranteed happy endings and that mortality is a real thing and and use that time. Like people, when I hear the story of my mom, they're waiting for the happy ending like it's a movie. I was like, no, it ends horrifically. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's just yeah. like, it ends terribly, you know? And there's something that I feel like you possess that I want to pull out of you from all this time that is some ability or something that you do to decompress. I don't know if it's like a tool or a mental process or because the amount of stress when you layer in everything would cause some people to just shut down. You're talking about mentally exhaustion from law school to press secretary to one of the most intense situations that city's ever encountered with, you know, the passing of your mom and the health issues prior to that. How do you do that then and and now? Like, how do you deal with such high, extreme amounts of stress and pressure? It's a great question. I don't have perfectly great coping mechanisms, honestly. I know it brings me joy. I marvel at human capacity. And I love when I have interactions with somebody who is trying to break through and I could change the trajectory of their life by holding up a mirror. Mm. That's a convoluted thought, but that does make me almost manic. Like, well, this is amazing. Like, I'm... I was able to use my story to inspire you and you asked me for advice and I was able to distill what's going on in your mind and we made progress, right? So that that, that excites me. The reason why I'm pulling that out is if I don't have that in a given day, the stress starts to really get to me. If yeah. like, if my day is full of, you know, nonsense, small talk, I end up hiding in the bathroom, you know, like really, like I'm, I'm, I'm not actually an extrovert. I'm very introverted. And so I, the way I decompress is to make sure it all matters by having these moments of, of intervention with other people. Cause if I've had a life through of stress and constantly breaking through, and the payoff is that I can model what it looks like to somebody else, right? What I love is that I have authority. So I always start with the GED because what happens is when you're me and you're, you know, look, I'm a white male in my late 40s, you can make all sorts of assumptions about me. Like, I don't want to be denied my origin story because then I lose the opportunity to inspire somebody else who's in the same spot, right? So I don't want to be typecast. And so as a result, because I put in the work of the stress, if I share it, I can, I have authority. And then I have, and then I can make progress faster. Does that make sense? Somebody's not rejecting. Well, you don't know. It's like, what don't I know? I just told you that I grew up on government cheese. My mom died after 10 years of agony. Do I have authority now? You know, and then I ended up on Shark Tank. Will you listen to me now? And so a lot of the things I've done, if I'm being perfectly honest, were to accumulate authority so that I could do what I really want to do, which yeah. is share the lessons I learned when I was 16. That the highest and best use of anybody's life is to ameliorate suffering. Right. Like if somebody had like reached out when I was a kid and said, like, can I help your mom? She wouldn't have died. My mother didn't die because she needed to die. She died because that's how society works. Yeah. You know, that's the real reality. So what long way of saying, I guess I don't have decompression mechanisms. I have things that that excite me and, and sustain me through the pressure that this is where this is the outcome. It, right. 
Yeah. I mean, like it's probably less well-adjusted. My wife is like the source of everything for me and stability. I married the most amazing person. So she is truly my partner and everything. She's brilliant, but she's also very well-regulated. And so, so I draw strength from that rock, probably the single greatest decision I've ever made. But like, uh, all kidding aside, everyone should have a partner in a foxhole. It helps them get through. And she is my rock. And that does help me, you know, decompress. Lesson number four, marry well. I like it, you know. Exactly. It's so, by the way, lesson number one, number two, and number three. Right? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. like, like I, you know, I don't know if you mean, I mean, people, anybody out there listening, I always look for these little signals when I'm doing a deal because it import, it's important who you partnered with, right? And when I see these little proxies for contempt and resentment, when a couple is together, I'm like, oh, that's not good. Why are you trying to cut them down? Or when somebody says to me like, oh, you know, I really like uh, him because like, you know, they put me in my place, you know, when my ego gets too big. I'm like, are you, did you go shopping for somebody to put you in your place? I don't know about you, but I'm trying to overcome the imposter syndrome. I guess you must be an egomaniac, you know? And they're like, well, I'm not, but like, uh, you know, so I have these like grandiose thoughts. I'm like, <laughs> like, you're like. <laughs> Why are you, why, why, you know, and then, and then you realize I, I get this epiphany when I kept hearing people say this word in these questionable relationships, like, well, I like, I, you know, they help me keep grounded. I'm like, God, like grounded is for planes. Like, that's not a good word. You know what I mean? You know, anyway, yeah, my, yeah, my point being lessons, number one, two, and three people out there listening, marry well. <laughs> yeah. And, and I like what you just said, that how you see other people interacting with their committed partner tunes you in to maybe some underlying behavior that you want to either invest in or you don't want to invest in. I think that's a, you read some literature about Andrew Carnegie and some of the old heavyweights in business, and they actually would take spouses out on dates with their, with their couple, they would take out so they could see the interaction of the family. And I, I do it all the time. You know, it's funny in private equity. Well, obviously everyone's heard about, you know, SBF, what happened with FTX, right? And, and, and the unspectacular yet unsophisticated fraud that was allegedly per perpetuated. But what I find most interesting about that, it's a proxy for private equity and, and venture that here's a guy who could basically run his business on Excel you know, and refuse any sort of oversight and accountability and whatnot. Like, but what that triggered in me is how some of the worst deals I've ever done are when I defer to the judgment of supposedly a sophisticated, massive firm, you know, and then you see all this motion, all these experts, all this diligence. And then I meet the founder after writing the check. I'm like, he has no collar stays. It's like shirts askew. It looks like he's out of his mind. Anybody notice he's not in a good place? Like, I always say, there's a great word phrase in Italian, but I won't mess it up by doing it in Italian, doing it in English. The fish rots from the head. And so you always want to understand what's going on in somebody's mind. What are the choices they made around them? What's their dynamic with their partner? Not because you want to judge them for it, because you want to know the areas that you need to unlock and, and get through. And so a lot of times when you see somebody with a partner that the dynamic just seems off or there's an under, undercurrent of resentment, it's one of two reasons. It's, it's or many reasons, but a couple that kind of rise to the top that the person didn't believe they were good enough at, at a moment in time, right? And, or they didn't believe there was better out there. So they were sort of settling. So I just think a lot, a lot can be said, but the reason why I care the most is because that's going to be an extra layer of stress that I'm going to have to manage if there's a partner dynamic that's off. Yeah. So good for our listenership. What are some key qualities to expand on what you just said that you find to be some of the most important attributes to what you look for in someone who's building something? Let's talk about it from the individual's perspective who's writing the check or backing the business or deciding whether to get involved and from the perspective of evaluating the person who's running the business, right? So from your perspective, I find that people are so afraid of the, the, the idea that they just had or the, you know, or the, or the idea they just stumbled upon that somebody else had is going to be somehow torn apart that they'll never have a better one. 
And so people are, are talk themselves into it as opposed to scrutinizing, right? Like it's that spontaneous insight at two in the morning. Like I got a knife for an idea for a business and you don't want to one, talk yourself out of it, but two, you don't want to ask yourself the following question. If I pursue this at what cost three years down the road, what, what better thing could I have done in lieu of doing this? Right. And so I spend a lot of energy on opportunity cost. I'm always pulling forward opportunity cost and always assuming I can do the impossible so that I can hold up future Matt against this Matt that's going to have to spend the next three to five years working on this project, business, whatever. So I do a lot of coaching when somebody tells me they have an idea and you've experienced this and you have to deliver the bad news like this is just not worth your time or, you know, more specifically, what you have come up with is a feature, not a not a business. Right. And whatever the bad news you have to deliver to somebody that they're on the wrong path. I always say when I deconstruct when things go wrong or people are unhappy for three, four years down the road, it's because they failed to ask themselves the, the right question. Not that they went down the wrong path. The question is, just because I can do something doesn't mean I should do something, right? Just because I had a good idea at two in the morning doesn't mean it's the best idea. And ideas are like, in real estate, there's always a better house on the corner when you lose that house. Like the same thing with ideas. So so I think from, from, a, from an investor standpoint, ask yourself the critical question like about opportunity costs. In terms of evaluating who to back, and it really is always about people. Again, cliche, but cliches exist for a reason. Like, so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what makes the person tick and do they have what it takes. So if I was to boil it down to one thing that I'm always looking for, aside from intellect, those are table stakes, aside from general competency, it's self-awareness. I think self-awareness is the single greatest arbitrage entirely within someone's control. Like we spend so much time looking for a hack. We go to Barnes and Noble and we look at business books, my book. We listen to podcasts. We spend so much, we spend more hours now than we ever have before seeking out expertise, all in an attempt to outsource our instincts and judgment to another. Hmm. It's all the same underlying exercise, right? Let me outsource my judgment to Matt at the bookstore or to a podcast, as opposed to saying, well, let me begin by seeing what I can unlock myself. And that journey of unlocking where the arbitrage is is self-awareness. So how do I spot self-awareness? I look for signals, tells for a blend of confidence and humility. Confidence and humility, while they may seem in opposition, are actually inextricably linked because you have to have the confidence to look within and, and face the reality that you're wrong. You, and you have to have the humility to, to acknowledge it publicly because that's where the course corrections will be made when those things to work together. And I can generally predict the outcome of a CEO by the amount of time it takes for them to implement a decision that is objectively inevitable. In other words, you're so screwed. And if you don't change product lines, you are going to fail. And I, and I find a lot of times people are so afraid to deal with that reality where what they don't realize is the universe gave all of us, because I do think the universe is benevolent, gave all of us the capacity to iterate and pivot before it's too late. If you ask yourself, how many, when you made the dumbest decisions in your life, how many second chances did the universe present to you before you made that stupid decision, right? Like you married the wrong person. You're like, you kind of knew, but like, and then you broke up seven times. You know what I mean? Like ah, you have a crappy boss, you know, they treat you like not, you know what I mean? Like, you know, self-awareness, confidence, humility will mean that you'll take one of those opportunities sooner or later. It's mm, good. Yeah. And I can even extend on that, that going with your gut is something a lot of managers and leaders sometimes fail to do because we often have to coach them on when it's time to let someone go because they're so emotionally tied to someone. They know in their gut, it's not a right fit, but they'll wait 
six months to a year to, to, to actually pull the trigger because the maybe the emotional attachment to that person. So there's so many examples, I think, of what you just shared. Well, well, to say with you, what you said, it's like, I, I think the, the, the letting somebody go is an emotional decision full of friction. We as leaders and as people only have a finite capacity to make hard emotional decisions. They are more draining than other kinds of decisions, right? So what I, what, when I find, this is convoluted, so bear with me, but I really feel so passionate about it. When somebody's taking on water and they're going through duress, um, particularly in a divorce or um, bereavement, you know, or depression, your capacity to make hard emotional decisions is severely limited. And so you can't, you don't want to face conflict like that. You just, because you're dealing with so much emotional leakage, which is why if you don't create space for your managers or your people to be vulnerable about the incoming, the water they're taking in, they're going to hide that and make really bad decisions to cover it up. They're going to rationalize. I need to keep Bill because Bill is a real producer. It's like, the, no, Bill is tanking the company when the reality is you don't want to make it because you're you're so bogged down with the emotional weight. So again, so convoluted. And I don't know how you'd put this even in a manual, but I know it to be true how bad the quality of your decisions were when you were taking on water and how much you wish to avoid emotional conflict because you were already in pain. So when I always think back when I was going through divorce, I made some of the worst decisions I've ever made. And, but I also was like, there's no room here for this pain. Like if I had just told everyone I, somebody died in my family, everybody would be consoling me. But when it comes to that, it's like, nobody cares. This is the worst thing that I've ever gone through. Everybody was nice when I had cancer too. And I was like, everyone was really nice when I had cancer, but with divorce, it's like no big deal. And so I learned a lot about myself, about how prior to that, I, I didn't have a lot of room for empathy around things that were not objectively cataclysmic that I, you know, but otherwise get over it. And that's because when I had cancer, I wanted to show everybody I was so tough because I was so insecure. I went, I went to work the next day after getting my, you know, testicle removed, went to work with a bag of ice. And I was like, check me out. I had a dog tag. I said, half the balls, twice the man. Sorry, many close your ears, children, you know, anyway, but like all an attempt to show that I was so tough. And uh, that's the last thing a manager should do because then people start modeling that behavior and then they hide their shame. Yeah, and pack in the emotions. Yeah, I, such a good lesson in that. You, you've been so vulnerable about the the learning paths that you've experienced. And I think, you know, listeners really appreciate that because so often we look at our models in life and this is a, a meta example of what you just said. It, by listening to a podcast, we hear all the perfection and we don't get the the procedure they had to go through and the peeling back the onion and the heartache and the mistakes. And so just even getting a, a gleam at some of your own personal lessons that you've been through in your journey, I think makes you human to a lot of people. It also gives people hope they can have the success and, and build something similar. You know, I appreciate you saying that because I, I do think we we're now in a world where people embrace vulnerability. Everyone knows that you now you need to have a vulnerability. Like you need to have struggled, struggled and overcame it. What I think is inauthentic about the universe still and what we see on social media is that everything has an arc. I was doing great. And then I stumbled. And then I was humbled. And then I rose again. And now I'm still here. Whereas that's not how life is. Like we all regress to regress as human. And so I'm always trying to share um, the best I can the the reality of it, which does ring true. I mean, I I, I hope people hearing this be like, oh, I can relate to that. Like. And so I don't, I don't like the way the we manifest on social as if people are now a finished product because I think that actually hurts people because it does, they can't recognize themselves in us because you know that our lives aren't tidy little narrative arcs where we stumbled and we came back and now we're now we're good again. We are our lives are about regression and progression in constant seesaw with each other. 
And so I work really hard to asterisk the out of my life. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like other people try to get rid of the aster. I'm trying to put them in because I don't want to do a disservice to anybody listening. Yeah. Feeling like I think about Shark Tank. I talk a lot about imposter syndrome on Shark Tank, the set of Shark Tank. And the reason why I feel it's so important, if you watch my first episode, people would objectively say I was very good at it. And the other shark said, you were great at it, right? Like, well, if I let the story lie there, then I haven't made a gift of my appearance. The bigger gift is to say I was shaking like a rabbit, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I felt like a kid from Queens. Yeah, what a big thing. Um, this has been excellent. In lightning round, these are real quick responses. Sure. Tools, apps that you've used recently, anything that you feel like has been great. I, I really, really believe in the power of, of contemplating mortality multiple times a day. So I have an app that reminds me I'm going to die five times a day. Five times a day, a quote will pop up my phone in new eloquent ways from different philosophers telling me you're about, you're going to die. And the, re the, the reason why I tapped into it when I had testicular cancer is like when, when you, when we're afraid of dying more than we are anything. I think it's a source of a lot of our grief. But actually, when you contemplate mortality, what it does, it zooms you into the present. And in the present, you have very little pain. Mm. All the things that you anticipate going wrong don't exist in the present. And then you realize the truth of life is that it is the only thing you're guaranteed, but we don't connect with that thought. We say it in a, in a way that's, you know, that we don't really mean it. And so I have this app on my phone that I use constantly. It is called We Croak. We Croak. Okay. <laughs> I'm actually going to look into that because we talk about it. I really do. I wonder if the people out there are on this app, like, who's that guy who keeps talking about our app? But yeah, <laughs> that's great. Uh, and then either a book mentor or someone that you follow. Oh, that okay. I'm a huge Emerson fan, right? Mm -hmm. And like a lot of my life is lived around Ralph Waldo Emerson. And, and I probably read Self-Reliance every week. I think it's one of the greatest pieces of writing ever written. And it touches upon themes we talked about in this podcast. In fact, I think I just basically plagiarized him with my, my thoughts. But basically this idea that, and everyone can relate to this, when you have a, a spontaneous insight that you feel like you're right, but you reject it because it's not being validated by the by someone else and you wait for it to be validated. And now you're forced to take your own idea from another. And the essay talks about how demoralizing that idea is, which is why, and I coined my own phrase for this, but that op opportunity arises before the tipping point of evidence. And I like to think of it like lightning and thunder. Opportunity is the flash of lightning. And then there's the five second time delay before thunder. If you wait to operate on thunder, everybody saw it, but not everybody saw the flash of light. So Emerson, the, those thoughts came to me as a kid. I first read it when I was a little boy and that changed the course of my life. So self-reliance. Mm, so good. Everybody listening, uh, go check out the book, Burn the Boats. Yeah. Can I give you a minute on the book? Can I tell you the book? Yeah, please. So Burn the Boats. Why is it called that? Um, I basically uh, appropriated a term that has been used throughout military history by some very bad actors from time to time. But the common thread of all of them, and it goes back to since the beginning of recorded history, the phrasing, sometimes slightly different, about burn the boats, meaning when you are in a, in a position, when you are outnumbered and your back is against the wall, the best way to, to channel um, the best of you is to eliminate your escape route and literally burn the boat. So it's an art of war. It shows up with Caesar and uh, uh, and the ancient Israelites, like it, 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 the simple comment. So my my thought was, how do I take this idea of giving yourself no plan B uh, and demonstrate that science, history, psychology all shows that humans perform better when they don't have a safety net? Mm -hmm. Humans humans are, and it's counterintuitive because when I say this, people are like, well, that's easy for you to say, you know, you have money or I can't take risk. I said, I didn't say burn the boats with you in it. 
And I didn't say blow up the bridges. That's not what the book is called. You know, I said burn the boats because what it means is to eliminate the plan B. And the way you do that is to first by contemplate the worst case scenario. So to work backwards, right? So that you can comfortably assume the risk. And so I decided, let me write a book about what does it truly take? So it's not Instagram posts and platitudes, like put real thinking behind how do we overcome the internal and the external obstacles that prevent us from fully committing to plan A? Because everybody listening to me right now wants to do that. We all want, I want to do that. And so I used my story only as a vessel to transmit. What does it look like as one case study? And then I interviewed 50 different celebrities athletes, artists, people that I have mentored or advised or touched throughout my life to show their journey of transcendence because we sometimes like to think, yeah, but I can't. So I wanted to show different manifestations of you or versions of you. So I have billionaires from Mark Laurie. Um, and I have Scarlett Johansson. I'm a partner with her. And then I have a paraplegic gymnast from Connecticut, who, I'm from Canada rather, who believes her life was better after the accident happened. Like showing how people crossed a threshold of commitment and I, I, I believe what I did. I hope I did because this, I feel like this is my life's work. I tried to create a blueprint for how do you live a life of perpetual growth where you can let go, where you mm. can shed your shame, you can shed the things hold you back, and you can fully commit to plan A. Mm. And that kind of leads to your your theme in life of freedom, which I love. So Freedom, yeah. When it doesn't have to be your why, but you have to have a why. Thank you so much for this interview. Appreciate you being generous with your time. So this has been wonderful. No, thank you. I, I love I love talking. I love talking about these themes. Take care. Your hair is amazing, by the way. I didn't get a chance to compliment you on your beautiful hair. <laughs> right back at you, Matt. Thanks. All right. I know we did. We did well. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. And to stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and on Twitter at Catalyst underscore action. And thanks for listening. Matt Higgins, a self-made entrepreneur and Shark Tank guest judge, provides an inspiring and actionable playbook for fearless success in his new book, Burn the Boats. Go to burntheboatsbook.com to learn more about how to toss plan B overboard and unleash your full potential. Or go to amazon.com and search burn the boats book to buy now.